Pines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, October 12th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out how Mississippians are lending a helping hand to devastated parts of Florida as they pick up the pieces in the wake of Hurricane Michael. We were not in the bullseye on this one, fortunately for us, unfortunately for our parties in Florida, so it's up to us now to help those folks out. Then, a new report suggests the U.S. is the most dangerous developed country in which to give birth. We'll get the details. And we'll learn life-saving lessons on storing guns and ammunition. This is not saying that Mississippians or anyone in America shouldn't own guns. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippians are heading to Florida to help with recovery efforts following one of the worst hurricanes to hit the U.S. State agencies, utility companies, and humanitarian organizations are all sending crews as Floridians assess the damage from Hurricane Michael. The Category 4 storm packed winds of more than 150 miles per hour and 9 feet storm surges Wednesday when it hit Florida's panhandle. Damage reports continue to flood in. By Thursday afternoon, five deaths were attributed to the hurricane. Ray Coleman is an external affairs officer at the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier numerous agencies are sending relief. So we're trying to help in any way that we can um, from sending, you know, different state agencies over um, to assist in different, you know, aspects. Uh, here at MEMA, first and foremost, we were able to send two of our employees to assist in what we call um, coordinating of logistics and different assets. So we have two folks from our office that um, left today, if I'm not mistaken, and they'll be working over there for two weeks, maybe even longer. Um, we have folks from our state search and rescue team that have gone over, uh, 42 personnel from the Mississippi Office of Homeland Security, and they're going to be serving as a swift water rescue team. So they're helping with any um, rescues that are going on in the state of Florida due to Hurricane Michael. We also have some folks from the Mississippi Department of Health, and we also have a contingency from the Mississippi National Guard that have gone over as well. Um, so, again, just any way that we can provide assistance um, to, our, to our partners in Florida, we're going to do so. So is it safe to say we probably got, like, maybe close to 75 or 80 people over there? It will be close to that number. I'm not sure of the exact totals from the, um, the health department and the, and the Mississippi National Guard. But, again, if, if, if they need more and if we can provide it, we're going to do that. Our director, Director Michelle, has made it clear that we're here to help. You know, we, we were not in the bullseye on this one, fortunately for us. Unfortunately for our partners in Florida, so it's up to us now, and not just us, but for other surrounding states as well, to help those folks out. You know, um, I haven't been at MEMA that long, almost three years for myself, but um, the folks around here who have been here for over 10, 20 years, they talk about the times of Hurricane Katrina when, you know, people from all state agencies would come over and help for weeks and months on end. So it's only right that we return the favor at this time. Had they told you, given you any indication of how severe the need is there? They have not. The way we kind of operate is that they will put their request in uh, through a system we call the Emergency Management Assistance Compact. And so they'll kind of identify what, what needs and resources that they might have at this time. And if we can fill it, we'll do so. Um, other states kind of look in that same database and, and do the same thing. As far as the, the overall damage, they haven't given us an idea of, of, of what they're looking at. Obviously, they're going to be assessed 
um, not just today. Um, sadly, they'll be assessing for, for, for weeks and months on end. But um, it's, a, it's a tragic event. Obviously, you know, we've seen it uh, on, on the television and, and just in the pictures that you're seeing on social media and the folks who are sharing it. And it's devastating. It really is. When you see uh, places like Mexico Beach um, that have beautiful scenery and homes and uh, businesses and that have been wiped out, it does bring back members of folks in Mississippi of, um, of a bad time. So I think that's why Mississippians are so willing to help in times like this. And as you mentioned, uh, Mississippi was not hit by this storm, which, I mean, we don't want anyone to be, be hit. But it's really a blessing because usually anything that comes through the Gulf Coast, we get it. Absolutely. We dodged a bullet. You know, this was a storm that um, I want to say early in the week was maybe a Category 1, maybe a Category 2. And it rapidly intensified. And so the folks in Florida did a great job of, of, of heeding the warnings of their local officials um, but nobody can withstand, you know, honestly, Category 4 winds. We're talking access of 150 miles an hour. That's catastrophic damage on that Florida coast. And so our hope is that, you know, not a lot of lives were lost and that people um, can get back on their feet as soon as possible. I've already been seeing reports on the national media of power outages being restored, so that's always good to see. Um, we know here in the South, um, in general, people are always willing to step up and volunteer. So you're seeing those folks that want to get there and help, um, but the first and foremost thing is to make sure that people are safe those search and rescue missions are happening and that the local, state, and federal partners are giving the immediate access to those folks um, that need it right now. When does hurricane season end officially? Hurricane season officially ends November 30th. There have been times um, where you've seen tropical systems kind of uh, pop up after that, but normally if you can make it to November 30th, uh, you're going to be in the clear. October really isn't a, a big month for hurricanes. You really haven't seen that much of our history. We had one last year in Mississippi with Hurricane Nate, of course, but you really don't see hurricanes this time of year. When you do, we really don't see them as strong as we just saw here with Hurricane Michael. This is definitely one that most people would not expect this time of year. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that's important to mention about this? I think it's just important for people who are not in Florida, and maybe if you're in other parts of Florida, to look at this situation and understand two things. Uh, one, the people of Florida did a great job of, of listening to the advice of their local officials and evacuating and um, taking those precautionary steps to save lives and property. So that's the first thing. But also understand that just because you don't live in Florida, don't think that it can't happen to you again. It started off as, a, as possibly a, a, a low-end hurricane, and within 48 hours it became, you know, a, a major catastrophic hurricane. So we have to look at this situation and learn from it and say that could be us this year, next year, you never know. So always be ready. Always take the opportunity to prepare yourself and your family uh, for the worst-case scenario. Ray Coleman with the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. We appreciate you speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Mara Hartman is spokesperson for Entergy Mississippi. She tells our Desiree Frazier, despite challenges finding lodging, 126 of their workers are taking to the Panama City area. We haven't heard a lot about the conditions, but we do know they have way more power outages, obviously, than they can deal with themselves. And we will not be the only utility company, of course, helping them. Other energy companies from our sister states are coming, as well as uh, help from utilities around the country. It's, you know, it's it's pretty bad. Florida was certainly one of the companies that helped us out in our hour of need during Katrina and with other hurricanes. So we're very happy to be able to go down there and and return that favor, so to speak. 126 people, that's a lot. 
when we get a request for mutual assistance, we go to our line workers, and, and they really have a heart for service, linemen do, and we ask for volunteers because they don't know how long they'll be gone. We anticipate they'll be gone at least a couple of weeks with this storm, and they leave their families behind, um, but we we make sure we have enough people to address any outages that we might experience, and then we send as many as we can, and we always have plenty who are willing to go help others in need. What will they be doing? First, they'll go through a training briefing with Gulf Power and be taught a little bit about what Gulf Power's electric infrastructure looks like because each utility is unique in that respect. And then they'll be given a safety talk again because when you work with live electricity, that's the number one concern is and priority is safety. And then they'll be dealing with downed power lines. So we'll have some crews down there that will help remove trees and other debris that must be removed before you can access the grid to start replacing broken poles and broken lines. But that's primarily what they'll be doing, trucking in poles and stringing up new line and hanging transformers and just really not just restoring electricity, but rebuilding the electric grid in Florida. And so that could take a couple of weeks, as you mentioned? At least. Gulf Power, of course, is working to, and our people are working to ensure they're well-fed and that their clothes are washed and that they have access to showers and all those things that we take for granted, but that are hard to find when you're in an area that's been devastated like Panama City and other parts of Florida have. Well, Maura Hartman with Entergy Mississippi, we appreciate you telling us about what your crews are doing to help others in need. Thank you, Desiree. Mississippi Salvation Army and American Red Cross are also sending crews to Florida. Coming up, a new report suggests the U.S. is the most dangerous developed country in which to give birth. We'll get to the details. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Attention all educators. MPB has partnered with the Secretary of State's office to host this year's Promote the Vote initiative. Help your students learn important lessons about civic engagement while having fun in the classroom. This opportunity is for K-12 students across Mississippi. Get them engaged with a mock election, plus art and essay contests. For more information about Promote the Vote or to sign up your class or school, visit mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Forty counties in Mississippi qualify as maternal care deserts, according to a new report from the March of Dimes. Those are places where women lack access to pregnancy-related care and are at greater risk of birth complications. When Gora Thompson is maternal care director at the March of Dimes, Mississippi... She tells us more about the report and their new campaign called Hashtag Blanket Change. About 10 million women live in counties with very limited access to maternity care. And so that translates to these counties had few hospitals offering obstetric services, few OB providers, and a high proportion of women without health insurance. And so more than 330,000 babies were born in these types of counties. In Mississippi alone? Not in Mississippi alone. That was nationwide. But about 40 of the 82 Mississippi counties are maternity care deserts. So that's nearly 50% of counties in the state that are considered maternity care deserts. What is a maternity care desert? 
So uh, Maternity Care Desert is a county that has no hospital offering obstetric care and OB provider. Are they in a particular area of the state or spread out? They're spread out. And I can name a few of the counties. Please do. You have Humphreys County, Leak County, uh, Montgomery County, Covington, Atala, counties like Yazoo County, Tunica County, uh, Wilkinson County, and a host of others. You're all over the state, yeah. They're all over the state. The report says that women of color are most at risk. Why so? You know, we don't have direct answers for that. So there's no one silver bullet answer. Um, But we do see that black women tend to experience high-risk pregnancies. Um, And they tend to be, as the report shows, in areas where there is limited maternity care. Is cost also a factor? Might someone not get prenatal care because they can't afford to? That is the case. And so um, the report also discusses how, um, for instance, there are areas where many women are uninsured or underinsured. And in those places, it's likely that they don't have funds to receive prenatal care or it's limited. You mentioned that these are areas that don't have hospitals. Do they have clinics? Are there individual doctors? Is there a shortage of doctors in these 40 counties? It's all of those things. We have women in the state that in some cases, especially if they need uh, specialized care during their pregnancy, they have to drive an hour, if not more, to see a doctor. It's surprising to hear that there are not OBGYNs. I mean, women have babies. It's pretty common. It's pretty natural. Why is there a shortage in those areas? Well, one, what could attract a a provider to live in a rural area or provide care in a rural area. And if, as a state, there's not the infrastructure to support rural hospitals, um, as we've seen with many of them closing across the state, that's also a barrier to attracting providers. What can be done at the state level to ensure that more women receive care and support before, during, and after pregnancy? So there's no single action, but some of the things that we do suggest and have seen to improve the situation include increased access to affordable care during the preconception period, prenatal, and postpartum time, Um, incentivizing healthcare providers to work in underserved areas, advances in medical technology. So the state has a great telemedicine program. Potentially, we could use it to provide care to women in remote rural areas. Um, And then also providing logistical support and financial assistance to women so they can travel to receive care should the need be. You said that while women of color are most at risk, the reasons why weren't as clear. Is there a way to address the disparities and those disparities be reduced without knowing all the reasons why they exist? Absolutely. Um, So things like group prenatal care, we know um, the science has shown has reduced disparities in preterm birth outcomes as well as in mortality rates. And so the, the positive thing is we have one site so far in the state that is providing this model, that has started providing this model of care. Um, however, of course, we need more across the state in order to address these geographic and racial disparities. 
And then also considering 17P for women who have had a prior preterm birth, which in many cases are black women, making sure they have access to 17P um, early on in their pregnancy. And then also low-dose aspirin for preeclampsia. So if a woman has preeclampsia, and we do see in many cases black women in this state are more likely to experience that during pregnancy, low-dose aspirin, and, and that's a conversation, of course, between provider and women, um, patient, but that's also a method as well. Tell us about the hashtag blanket change campaign. The goal of the campaign is to urge voters to make Mothers and babies are priority this election season, and we're demanding the candidates fight for better maternal outcomes and bring hashtag blanket change to the United States. We need the nation's help to get every congressional candidate's commitment to support these measures if they're elected to office. You know, we've seen that in the last year, 700 moms died, 700 whether that was during or a little bit after delivering their baby, and in some cases during pregnancy. And so that's why we're demanding blanket change. And it's primarily a social advocacy campaign. Um, So people will see posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we have a powerful video that can be shared online. When Gora, where can people see the report? So if they visit marchofdimes.org and look for the Maternity Care Desert's report it's there on twitter if you just hit the hashtag blanket change you'll see you'll be able to run into the report um, but definitely by visiting our website when gora thompson is the director of maternal and child health and government affairs for the march of dimes mississippi when gora thank you very much thank you karen you're listening to Mississippi Edition, the only daily radio news magazine that covers the whole state. Coming up, we'll learn life-saving lessons on storing guns and ammunition. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson, inviting you to join us right here on MPB for Friday night. Under the lights, we'll get you all the scores and keep you up to date on all the players at 10 p.m. every Friday night this fall. Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Friday night under the lights. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation's Get to College program. Based in South Haven, Jackson, and Ocean Springs, Get to College advisors help students and families plan and pay for college. Learn more at woodwardhines.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Advocates with the Center for Gun Violence Prevention are encouraging Mississippi gun owners to safely store their weapons. They say eight children are killed or injured every day by what they call family fire. It's a shooting involving an improperly stored or misused gun found in the home that results in death or injury. They say there's a paradox when a gun is brought home for safety but has high potential to cause harm to those it is meant to protect. Now, The End Family Fire campaign hopes to reduce the chances of unintentional shootings. Campaign advocates Kylan Hunter and Hector Adams spoke with MPB's Kendra Wright. Adams was personally affected by family fire. Hunter says Mississippi has a large number of gun owners, making precautions even more critical. End Family Fire is a campaign that is aimed at the preventable gun tragedies that occur every day in this country. Family fire is a term that we're entering into the lexicon to describe the shootings that happen from an improperly stored or misused gun that's been found in the home. 
every day, eight children are unintentionally killed or injured as a result of family fire. This is because 4.6 million kids live in homes where they have access to loaded and unlocked guns, and three out of four of those kids know exactly where those guns are stored. Family fire isn't an accident. It's a preventable tragedy that we are committed to ending and working with Americans across the country to end. What are some tips for storing guns safely? And, you know, Mississippi is a state with lots of hunters, fishermen. So oftentimes young people are exposed uh, and begin using firearms even in their teenage years. This is something that is, it should be very close to the vest there because almost half of the people in the state are gun owners. So there's a, a greater chance that it could be happening. So first and foremost, we recommend that everybody goes to endfamilyfire.org to learn the tips, but there's some, there's some good starter points that everyone should know. First is to lock your gun and keep the ammunition locked separately from it. This is going to reduce the risk of family fire by over 70%. And as for young people being around guns, I myself started shooting competitively when I was only 10 years old. So I grew up around guns. I've been used them most of my life. Both Hector and I are military veterans and have a great familiarity with guns. But just because you're, you're using guns and you're around guns in a controlled environment, like a sporting clay range or a hunting range, doesn't mean that you necessarily are going to be immune to these unintentional shootings. That's why even if you are in a home where you take your kids hunting and you take your kids shooting and you think that your kids are, are safe and secure, you still need to keep your guns locked and keep the ammunition separate from them because these unintentional events happen far too often and they can happen in the blink of the eye. And you mentioned that Mississippi has a large percentage of gun owners. Could you tell us about that? Yes, nearly 43% of Mississippians own guns. So this is, this is a very high number nationally. And guns are part of the culture there. It's a, it's a state that has a, a long tradition of hunting, that has a long tradition of, of shooting sports. You know, I've, uh, I was actually stationed in Meridian, Mississippi for a while and go skeet shooting outside of the base there quite a bit. So this is, this is not saying that Mississippians or anyone in America shouldn't own guns. It's saying that as somebody who relates very closely to those 43%, a gun owner myself, but somebody who also, like everyone in Mississippi, really cares about their family, cares about their community, that it's incumbent on us to side with safety, to lock up our guns, to keep the ammunition stored separately so that we can prevent these family fire tragedies that are happening every day. And speaking of senseless tragedies, Hector, you have begun advocating for gun safety, and the lives of you and your family were all changed when you lost your nephew to gunfire. Could you tell us what happened? Just before my nephew was to graduate the eighth grade, my nephew Joshua went to go visit a neighbor. When he entered the home, he was met by Billy, who was playing with his father's service weapon. Billy removed the magazine from the weapon and assumed that it would not fire. But unfortunately for my family, Billy did not know that there was a bullet chambered. Joshua was fatally shot through the stomach, and when he went down, he never got back up. And we just don't want families to suffer through the same pain and grief this has caused my family. So what do you hope listeners can take from your tragic experience? What can they learn from that? They can make their homes safer. They can make their communities safer, whether they choose to be a gun owner or they don't choose to be a gun owner, or they're 
not sure if they want to be a gun owner, uh, I would recommend you go to nfamilyfire.org. There are a lot of useful tips and information as to how to make your home safer, whether you are a gun owner or you're not a gun owner. And the most important message I could say is we can prevent these injuries and deaths by proper storage and securing of your weapon. Kyle Ann Hunter is co-founder of Veterans for Gun Reform, and Hector Adamis is also a veteran and an advocate for gun violence prevention. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you. Hear this conversation again whenever you want by subscribing to our podcast. Just search for Mississippi Edition in iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's the Gestalt Gardener. Then at 10, it's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy for Women. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.